0: July 1937, the world's most famous woman pilot disappears during her attempt to circumnavigate the globe. In 1988, the International Group for Historic Aircraft Recovery, a small nonprofit known by its acronym, TIGER, began a science-based investigation of the Earhart disappearance. Decades of forensic research and a dozen South Pacific expeditions have now produced hard evidence from multiple disciplines to provide the long-sought answer to the riddle. In this series of conversations with Joan Sachs, Tiger Executive Director Rick Gillespie takes us step-by-step step through the adventures, the setbacks, and the discoveries that uncover the evidence that has solved aviation history's greatest mystery.
1: Hi, I'm Joan Sachs. Like many of you, I've read newspaper and magazine articles, and I've watched television documentaries about Tiger's adventures and discoveries. As a member of Tiger, I've participated in research, and I know there is so much more to the story that has never been told. I've known Rick Gillespie and his wife, Tiger co-founder, Pat Thrasher, for many years. So when Rick asked me to help him bring the -the behind-the-scenes story of Tiger's Earhart expeditions to the public, in a series of podcast episodes, I enthusiastically agreed. Over the years, there have been 12 tiger expeditions to the South Pacific, and we've organized the podcast into seasons. To follow the progress of the investigation, you'll wanna listen to the episodes and seasons in order. For newcomers, we make it easy to catch up with the story so far by publishing a compilation at the end of each season. Now let's get to the next episode. Hi, Rick. In the last episode, it was the summer of 2017 and Tiger's 12th expedition was about to depart. But this time you wouldn't be going aboard.
2: Nope, that's right. This time a small Tiger team would piggyback on another cruise ship expedition organized by our senior archaeologist. Mm-hmm. It, was, it was quite an assembly. There were four. Forensic dogs, we talked about the yes. forensic dogs, and yeah. can smell uh, human remains and their handlers, of course. <laughs> National Geographic's archaeologist in residence, their archaeologist, was oh. uh, going along, along with a three person National Geographic film crew. They were going to get great video of these dogs doing their thing oh i bet there was a representative from the archaeology channel oh. also doing video they had two woods hole oceanographic institution scientists divers with them wow that, that wanted to dive there and they had about 30 some odd people who had paid to come on the trip hmm. uh, many of them were tiger members not all of them there was a doctor uh, the cruise company managers were there, and of course, a couple of Caribous representatives. Oh yes. Always have to have those. Right. All in all, they had about 60 souls. Ah. Uh, a big gang of people. Yes. The dogs were gonna search for bones at the seven site, the castaway campsite. Divers were going to search the main lagoon passage for airplane debris, also out in the ocean relocate the embedded object that we had seen in 2015 that our dive team had found and then couldn't relocate. Right. Other volunteers would try again to locate Camp Zero that our 2015 land team had concluded no longer exists. Hmm. They were gonna try to find initial Earhart Noonan survival camp.
1: Well, that's a lot of people to keep busy though. They probably, that was a-
2: Well, it's a lot of people to manage.
1: Yes, uh, but to to do search again for that, I can see why they would yeah, have done that.
2: Other volunteers would do some more searching in the abandoned village looking for anything interesting. Hmm. So they had big plans and I can't give you a blow by blow description of how it all went because I wasn't there. Huh. But it well, all pretty much came to naught anyway. Uh, so the, no
1: real useful information?
2: Well, the dogs alerted on the site of the now fallen down wren tree, where we had previously concluded the castaways partial skeleton was found in 1940. Mm -hmm. And they also alerted on the site where we had determined the skull had been buried and later exhumed. And we're hoping that maybe there's still teeth or something in there. And the dogs alerted on this hole, but excavation of those sites, yeah, the people, Dug like mad on these places where the dogs said there might be bones.
1: Uh-huh. No bones. Wow. They
2: dug and dug and no bones. And it was pretty clear that what was happening is the cadaverins—these chemical stains left behind when a human body rots away. Basically, mm-hmm. the cadaverins were still there, and the dogs were sensing those. Uh. Somebody died here. Somebody died here.
1: Hmm. So they were doing their job. The, but-
2: dogs are doing a great job but the bones were gone
1: Hmm. did they find any other locations that you hadn't uh, explored before
2: no they they identified what they thought were some crab burrows but again excavation didn't produce anything
0: Hmm.
2: and you know i wasn't
1: surprised
2: by that because
1: well you did a fairly exhaust exhaustive search yeah we
2: we had taken that place apart in 2010 And then, since then, I had talked to a number of people who were really familiar with what happens to bones after long periods of time, especially on islands that have crabs and rats. Mm. And the idea is that uh, the bones get chewed up Hmm. and they have valuable calcium in them. And I mean, that's why any forest is not littered with animal bones, because rats and mice and porcupines and, you know, people, people <laughs> i often think of animals as people so okay yeah i also think of some people as animals but we won't get into that <laughs> yes
1: probably this is not the <laughs> the, uh,
2: the underwater search of the main lagoon passage seems to have been treated in kind of a cursory fashion
1: why that's the second I, time I, was it just not a nice place to dive
2: well it's a difficult place to dive because of the currents that are going either one way or the other, is yeah, the it was, tide comes it in, it
1: sounded pretty sp- like a pretty specific area well, and a pretty we, specific we, time to dive.
2: Yeah, we really wanted to take a really close look at it, but uh-huh. the report I got after was, "Yeah, we took a look. There's nothing there."
1: <laughs> <laughs>
2: <laughs> they made a couple of attempts to rediscover the embedded object out in the ocean, but again, they couldn't. Find the thing, rats. It must be really tough. We know it was there in 2015, (laughs) and it hasn't gone anywhere. It's firmly embedded, but they couldn't find it. Hmm. The search for the mythical Camp Zero (laughs) Uh. was predictably futile. But the searchers, in looking for Camp Zero, did discover what they were convinced were graves at the northwest tip of the island. They were coral blocks set upright.
1: Oh, and the dogs also identified them. And the
2: dogs seem to confirm that yeah, these uh-huh. these are graves. Now, that land was never settled by the people who inhabited the island during the British occupation. Mm-hmm. But the land was allocated to families. And it's not inconceivable that they would bury relatives right. on their land that had not yet been Uh, Developed.
1: As opposed to in the village. As opposed to in in the village. Right, that does make sense.
2: But there were a couple of archaeologists with that group of volunteers, and they were convinced that these graves were probably prehistoric. Uh, Really? Well, we know the island was visited in prehistoric time. Prehistoric in this case, not meaning Neolithic times, but but before before the western... We had found things on the island that seemed to be stone tools. Oh, And there is no stone on that island, so somebody had to bring those
1: in. Yeah, well, that makes some sense. Hmm.
2: The search of the abandoned village, of course, resulted in the collection of more totally irrelevant artifacts. Which you have stored. Which I have carefully curated here. Mm -hmm. The weather was good. The seas were relatively calm. They didn't have a a lot of the problems that we often have, fortunately. Yes, really. There were no significant injuries. In the end, it was much ado about nothing. Hmm. And as far as I know, National Geographic never used any of the video they shot. Wow,
1: that was expensive. So much for
2: that. While all this was going on, I was dealing with a challenge to our anthropologist-published conclusion that the bones found in 1940 were most likely from a female of Earhart's height, build, and ethnic origin. Which would be Northern European. Ah. Yeah, that was a big deal. We yeah. got that information. The judgment was based on measurements made by the British Colonial Service doctor in Fiji in
1: 1941. Hmm
2: and were included in the original british file we discovered in the western pacific high commission archive in england in 1998. oh right and of course we gave those measurements to two modern forensic anthropologists and they come up with this you know well it looks to us like this was a a white woman of roughly earhart's height and uh, ethnic origin hmm. we thought that was pretty good but in 2015 an Australian archaeologist and a British grad student published a paper asserting that the identification by the doctor who had the actual bones, he said the bones belonged to a short stocky European or mixed race male, was more likely correct. Really? I mean the guy who has the bones says the guy you should believe, not from some games you play with the measurements he made. Well, we don't Think of it as games plan. I mean, we have much better ways, or anthropologists have much better ways, of assessing gender and ethnicity from bones than was available in 1940. Yes, and let's hope so. Hmm. Now, by 2015, one of the forensic anthropologists who had co-authored our 1998 report, Dr. Karen Burns, our beloved car, uh. was tragically dead. She she had died of a seizure apparently that none of us knew she ever oh my. had that problem but boom suddenly she was dead. Wow! And that was God. That was January of 2012 uh. when when she had died. But the other author, Dr. Richard Jans at the University of Tennessee Knoxville, happily took up the gauntlet. Oh! <laughs> and he called me and he said, "Look, ah." Uh, I'd like you and Jeff Glickman, our forensic imaging specialist, to help me kind of push the envelope here and see if there is more evidence to be gleaned from the measurements. There's there's more we can do if we can get more information about Earhart. And that'll have to come from historical photographs. And for that, we need Jeff Glickman's expertise. So I pass this along to Jeff and... Of course, he and I both jumped on it. Oh yeah, okay, go for it. All right. The first thing Richard Jantz did is look at the measurements the British doctor had taken of the castaways' humerus and radius, that is the upper and lower arm bones, mm-hmm. and compared their length, the the ratio of the upper arm to the lower arm. That's called the brachial index. Oh, And he found that it was a bit unusual. This castaway had an unusual brachial index. Not not freaky, but not normal either. This person had relatively long lower arms compared to the upper arm. Oh, that's interesting. Okay. Now, we don't know Amelia Earhart's, or we didn't at this time, know Amelia Earhart's bone lengths. But you don't need them to get a ratio. All we needed was a photo of her in short sleeves, and oh. we can count the pixels. <sighs> we don't need to know how big the pixels are or how long the bones right. are. Right, you we just can need a ratio. The ratio.
1: Yeah, interesting.
2: And hmm. her brachial index was identical to the castaways. Wow. Okay, this is this is worth pursuing. Okay, next we need to establish Amelia Earhart's true height. Now. Her pilot's license says that she's five feet, eight inches tall. Hmm. But her, under driver's license, it says she's five feet, seven inches tall. So which is it? In order to find out how tall she really was, we needed a photo of her with something that still exists. And she has to be in the same plane as that object. We need something we can measure. The
1: same and plane being this, the same. Yeah, and onto airplane.
2: She can't be some distance away from it. It's got to right. be right together. Well, as it turns out, there's a photo of her standing right beside, right up against the propeller of the Lockheed Vega she flew across the Atlantic in 1932. Ah. And that airplane is in the National Air and Space Museum. Oh, that's so, uh, cool. <laughs> So I get on the phone to NASM, to the National <laughs> Space Museum, to the curator in charge of the Earhart exhibit. And, and, and I knew her. I knew who she was. And I knew that she didn't think much of our theory. <laughs> and we had gone back and forth about this. But I said, look, I need your help on something. We need to establish Amelia's height. And we can do it if we can get access to the Vega. And she says, what do you mean access? I said, well, we're going to need to get in there and stand somebody uh, on Amelia's stand-in with a measuring stick and position the camera to exactly duplicate this historical photo. She says, you oh, know, it sounds like you're going to need to kind of disassemble the exhibit to do it. Oh, well, not very much, but <laughs> some. You know. Oh, man. I got her to agree. She, really? she agreed with us and we got permission. Wow. And so Jeff and I got in there early one morning uh, before the museum opened (laughs) and with her and helpers and we removed the things we needed to remove to get the camera placed where it needed to be. And I stood in there with the measuring stick (laughs) pretending to be Amelia and we got the photograph we needed. Wow. Yeah. Amelia was five foot seven, Jen five foot <laughs> eight. Okay, so we had that information.
1: Right. Huh.
2: Now, how do we get her actual bone lengths? Not just counting pixels, but we need actual bone lengths. If we can do that, if, if we can get her bone lengths, we can do a statistical comparison of her bone lengths with the vast collection of bones and the University of Tennessee collection. Oh. Okay. Let me explain how this works. Let's say I'm a male. I stand five foot 10. I have gray hair and a two inch scar on my left chin and a half inch scar under my chin. Hmm. Okay. I live in Oxford, Pennsylvania. There are 5,515 people who live in Oxford, Pennsylvania. Roughly half of them are male. Hmm. A lesser number but quite a few are gray-haired men. And an even smaller number of those gray-haired men stand five foot 10 inches. But how many also have the same set of facial scars I have? Oh. Eh, not very many, <laughs> if any. Right. Okay, that's the principle we're dealing with here. The University of Tennessee has a collection of skeletons from the what's often known, we've talked about it before, the body farm, where (laughs) they they put out uh, donated corpses to rot away, and when they have rotted away, they clean up the bones and put them in a box. Hmm. And they've got an archive, a storeroom, I've been there, I've seen it, thousands of boxes of skeletons, and for every skeleton, They've got a data information in a database of how long this bone is, how long that, how big oh around that bone. is, Who was this person? What were they like? I mean, were they physically active, or were they very sedentary? And so they've got all this information about wow, that's interesting about these people. Okay, so if we can get Amelia Earhart's bone lengths, we can make a comparison to her. Of a population of uh, chance could come up with data on 2,775 skeletons. Wow. Well, how do we get arm bone lengths? According to Jeff Glickman, we needed a photo of Earhart. Her arms should be bare. And there has to be something of known dimensions in the same plane. The propeller is not really going to do it. Huh. We we need her whole arm, and we need it straight. And there's got to be something of known dimensions in that same plane. Well, as it turns out, there's a photo of her standing beside the Electra in Darwin, Australia, with a can of, it's called mobile grease, in, in her hand. Oh. And it's kind of heavy, so her, her, so her arm, arm is straight. nice and straight. Huh. Well, that can of mobile grease doesn't exist, but cans like that. <laughs> and we put out the word that we needed this, and within like 10 minutes, oh. eBay, print <laughs> Oh, yeah. Wait, you want a no little can of mobile grease? Here. And it looks just like the oh, one I'm That's Okay.
1: What a, what a great idea.
2: Yeah. So Jeff Glickman next has to explain to his wife why he just paid $32 for an ancient can of grease.
1: <laughs> Filthy thing. but he
2: had it and that gave him the dimensions and from that we were able to get the actual bone lengths for our arms we know the castaway had these features measurements so forth those are our criteria and we compare those criteria to a population of 2775 individuals Hmm. and we find that only 19 people in that population match the criteria meaning there is a better than 98% chance the bones that were found on Nicomoraro are Earhart's. Wow. Okay. But the population on Nicomoraro is not 2,775. No. In fact, in terms of white women of Northern European descent, uh, it's like zero. (laughs) Wow. Uh, The probability the castaway was Amelia is is far higher than 98%. You, you never get to 100% with this sort of thing.
1: No, but that's huge news.
2: Yeah. In, in January 2018, Jantz published his paper in the, the peer-reviewed journal Forensic Anthropology, highly respected journal. Wow. That felt pretty good. I bet. The science was continuing to deliver terrific support for our hypothesis.
1: And what kind of... What kind of reaction did you get to? That?
2: Oh, we we got a feature article in the the Economist and other major magazines and very high level media. Really, but you know, if it's not a hundred percent, and and this kind of thing can never be a hundred percent. It's like it's like trying to touch your nose to the wall by decreasing the distance between yourself and the wall by half each time you never never get there you oh. never get there the science was delivering expeditions not so much oh. <laughs> <laughs> oh, so gosh. yeah next time we'll wrap up this podcast series with a look back on the whole Earhart Project and try to draw some conclusions and some lessons. Oh, well, we will look forward to that. Thank you. I'm looking
0: forward to it, too. (laughs) Thanks, John. Great. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening. The Earhart Expeditions is a serial history of Tiger's 12 expeditions to the South Pacific. We release a new episode each Tuesday. You can receive special bonus episodes and get access to Tiger's extensive video library by becoming a premium subscriber. Just go to Patreon, that's P-A-T-R-E-O-N, and search on Tiger, T-I-G-H-A-R. You can also be a part of the adventure and participate in research. Go to tiger.org and click on Join Tiger. See you next Tuesday.